and our English learners are going to benefit more if we're meeting with them more frequently and that's how we're going to know if if they need more support and they're not hiding behind their book or stuck on one book for weeks at a time or lost in the words um, or they're not moving forward the more we meet with them and the more we're um, talking to them and building relationships with them through this independent reading time when we're pulling groups and conferring we're also building relationships with these kids Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might we expand on the workshop model for reading and writing to ensure English learners have the accommodations they need to learn? What is the role and responsibility of teachers during shared, guided, and independent reading and writing times? How can well-designed reading and writing activities help build learning communities and allow teachers to get to know their students better? We discuss these topics and much more in our conversation with Valentina Gonzalez and Melinda Miller, authors of the new book, Reading and Writing with English Learners. Valentina Gonzalez has worked in public education for 21 years, serving as a classroom teacher, an ESL co-teacher and pull-out teacher, a district ESL facilitator, and a district professional development specialist for English learners. She has appeared on Highest Aspirations to discuss the workshop model for reading and writing, sharing resources during remote learning, and more. Dr. Melinda Miller is a full professor who has been teaching at Sam Houston State University since 2001. She currently teaches at the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral levels. This is her first time appearing on Highest Aspirations. Check out our show notes to read their full bios. Here's our conversation with Valentina Gonzalez and Melinda Miller. Valentina Gonzalez and Melinda Miller, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve. It's so exciting to be with you today. Thank you, Steve. This is a wonderful opportunity for us, and we're very excited. I'm excited to do it. Valentina, This is you're no stranger to this, uh, so you know how it all goes. And Melinda, we're excited to have you on. It's always good to have uh, two guests on, and especially when we're talking about the same thing. In this case, we're going to be talking about reading and writing, and particularly um, a book that you um, have ju- that is actually just available now. I understand on the Sidelets website. But let's let's get into it. I want to talk a little bit first about the inspiration of the book. It's called Reading and Writing with English Learners: um, A Framework for K to Five. So. How did the idea for this book come up? I'm, I'm interested to know sort of what was the challenge that you were trying to address um, by writing it? Well, I have always felt like I needed something more for my English learners. And I've always used the reading and writing workshop model in my classroom, but I felt like I wasn't doing enough for my English learners. I wanted them to feel at home and comfortable in the reading and writing workshops. And at the same time, I wanted them to find joy in reading and writing. And I knew that I needed to do something more to support them in the reading and writing workshop. And um, 
And I'd been talking to John Seidlitz about writing this book, and he came up with the idea that I write with Valentina, which was an excellent idea because we're so perfect together. We are so much alike. We have such similar mindsets when it comes to our English learners and other students. And, um, and we just work together so well. It's a great partnership. And we each bring our own strengths to the project. And I think it's a really good outcome. I totally agree with Melinda. And for me, um, it was a collision of three different challenges uh, that I wanted to address by writing this book. It's, it really starts from way back when I was a child learning English and sitting in a classroom and feeling really frustrated because I wanted to do well. I wanted to read like all the other kids were reading and it seemed like they were so into the books they were reading. And then later on when I became a classroom teacher myself, um, I wanted to serve the students that were in front of me, the English learners and all of the kids in my classroom. And I just felt like I wasn't reaching them, even though I myself was a student that was an English learner um, back in the day. I, I didn't feel I necessarily had the tools to teach those kids that were sitting in my classroom. I could empathize, but I didn't have the strategies and techniques I needed. I wasn't getting the professional development that I craved in order to help those kids. And then later I became an ESL teacher, an EL specialist, and I felt like I wasn't getting the tools as a literacy teacher as well. So the collision of myself being, being an EL student, a classroom teacher and an EL specialist and seeing the three different angles and struggles from three different perspectives led me to write this book. And like Melinda said, John Seidlitz had the brilliant idea of of bringing the two of us together. And we're so delighted to bring this book to all of you. Great. So it sounds like sort of a mashup of your separate, but also sort of similar experiences in some way, uh, in some ways. And Valentina, you and I have talked before about that empathy that you had as someone who sort of, um, you know, walked the walk, as they say, you, you, you'd experience many of the things, many of the challenges that you were seeing with your students. But it's always interesting when you say, you know, the empathy only goes so far. It doesn't, it doesn't take you to where, where you need to go and you need those strategies and tools. Um, and Melinda, I loved how you talked about, you know, how, how students need to find that joy of reading. You also talked about the workshop model. You referenced that many times. And Valentina, you and I actually have talked on this podcast about the workshop model, and we, and we geared that toward reading and writing for English learners. But now that's kind of seems to be kind of the foundation um, or a key part of what we're doing here. So before we go any further and dive into kind of the structure uh, or use the structure of the book to kind of talk about different topics within it, I want to I get a quick overview of that workshop model, if we could do that briefly. And we'll get into more details later. Um, uh, but but could you start, Valentina, by just giving us a quick overview of what that is? And I'll direct listeners toward that other episode as well in the show notes in case they want more details. Absolutely. Yeah. The way, the way that the workshop model works is that it allows teachers to help students in reading and writing or even in other subjects, math and social studies and science. It, it can be implemented in any content area. 
Um, but it allows teachers to break instruction up into an explicit um, instructional time and then move students into a guided practice and independent work. So workshop model is not a program necessarily. It doesn't have to be a specific program that you purchase or buy or a curriculum, but it's more of like a framework and a routine that we provide students. So for reading and writing, it may be that we're allowing students five to 10 minutes of explicit direct instruction through a mini lesson. And then we move students into a more independent time where we provide students time to apply the instruction that we provided in our mini lesson. And while students are working independently, teachers work with students in small groups and confer. And that's really the heart of the workshop model because we're, we're giving students time to apply, but we're also personalizing and individualizing instruction to meet students where they are. And something we really have to keep at the forefront of um, our ideas about the workshop model is that it doesn't necessarily accommodate for English learners. And, and this is something that was really important to me when I started thinking about writing a book for reading and writing instruction for English learners. It, it's real important that we recognize that workshop model differentiates. It, it allows for natural differentiation because we're working in small group with kids, but we have to know how to personalize and accommodate for students, especially those that have uh, that are adding English as a second language or students that need um, other types of specialized instruction based on their specific needs. If they have an IEP or if they're reading or writing off grade level, um, it, we're allowed that time to meet with them in small groups and get to know these students very well. And so we're really building on their assets and strengths. And finally, we wrap up the, the workshop time with um, a time for students to share, either five to 10 minutes to share as a whole group or share with a buddy or a partner. Um, that way we're kind of closing out our readers or writers workshop together. Right. Yeah. And that's, thanks for that. That was a really nice sort of overview of it. I know it's hard to do really quickly. Again, we did a whole conversation, a podcast episode about this, which I'll link to in the show notes if you want to know more about it, but that gives us a nice framework. And I love what you said about how, um, you know, it, 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 it is very sort of honest and transparent that it does not necessarily in and of itself accommodate for English learners. You know, it sounds like a lot of the work that you've done uh, with the book is to make sure that we kind of take that next step to be able to support um, those English learners through the workshop model. Um, and so like what I hope to be able to do, well, first of all, I should say, you know, I, I did get, I was really lucky. I think this is the first time this ever happened. I got like an early copy of the book, which was made mm -hmm. me feel really important, which was cool. Um, and I, but I looked through it. And I, I love the structure of it right away. Um, I knew that this was a book that you could either kind of 
you could read it all at once. I like the way it's written. Um, but you can also sort through the table of contents is lined up really nicely. And it talks about, you know, what something is and what it is not. And it's just really easy to look at. So um, kudos on that. And what I hope to do for the remainder of this interview is to kind of walk through the topics that you've covered, um, not only to give people a preview of the book, but also to get them thinking about some of the strategies that maybe they can begin kind of tinkering with um, right away. So um, we'll, we'll kind of go through each chapter of it. It's, it's, it's set up nicely that way. And so we reviewed the workshop model. Um, I want to go now toward that mini lesson piece, which Valentina, you just mentioned, is a part of the workshop model. So what is a mini lesson? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, and more importantly, maybe what it what is what is a mini lesson not? Yes, the mini lesson is really a way for us to set the tone for our workshop. And it is, it's a very small piece of the workshop, but it's a way to give very targeted and explicit instruction to the whole group. So it's just about 10 to 15 minutes where we gather the whole class and we give that direct instruction to students. We're going over a specific skill or strategy that all of the students are going to need for reading or for writing instruction. So it's going to follow a, a very specific routine and our mini lesson is intended to um, give students a very specific skill or content um, strategy that they're going to use in reading or in writing. Um, there are lots of different types of mini lessons that are available, but the one that I really uh, feel is nice for all students, whether they're English learners or um, or not, is the mini lesson that first starts by connecting to the background knowledge of students. Right. Very quickly, we connect to something they already know, so we're linking, and then we quickly teach them uh, one strategy or skill. We clearly demonstrate what we want students to know and be able to do, and then actively engage them in trying it out with a partner or trying it out in their journal or in their book. And then we end that mini lesson by linking it to application and the real world. And so the mini lesson is just a, like, a, it, like it says, mini. And to avoid making it a maxi lesson, we wanna avoid asking open-ended questions here and rather um, be very explicit in the instruction. What it's not is a lecture or PowerPoint presentation or a Google slide to make it more authentic and to make it more um, beneficial to our English learners. What we can do with a mini lesson is create an anchor chart with students that's very step-by-step -step and explicit and we can offer opportunity during that active engagement of the mini lesson, which is really quick. We can offer an opportunity for students to, to turn and talk with their partner or use a sentence stem, uh, draw, try it out with, um, with a group, whatever strategy we're teaching. So 
so that the mini lesson is not just the teacher talking the entire 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. And some of it, some of it almost seems, uh, well, it's difficult to, to, to accomplish. It's easy. It sounds easier than it is. I mean, just thinking about my own experience as a, as a teacher, you know, trying not to ask open-ended questions, um, so that you don't kind of go down rabbit holes that are going to take the mini lesson into a, a different place, providing maybe just enough structure, um, so that students kind of are aware of this routine but can also have some time, as you said, to kind of turn and talk or to do things like drawing and everything else. So it, it sounds like, you know, and, and you can see with the work that you have done with this, that there is a structure provided, but I feel like, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, either one of you, um, that there's an opportunity for a teacher to uh, play with this a little bit and do some different things within it. But there is certainly a structure that, that should be followed um, so that you kind of don't go off the rails with this, which again, is really easy to do. Absolutely. And, and the one way to really practice making the mini lesson mini and routine and structured is just to videotape yourself or time yourself. Or if you have a trusted colleague, have them observe you and give you some feedback about it. I know that can be kind of um, intimidating sometimes, but if there's someone that you work with closely that you trust, um, it's really beneficial to get that feedback and just practice shortening the mini lesson. And what I mean by like not asking open-ended questions is um, avoid asking, who remembers what we did yesterday? And, you know, that just creates this rabbit hole right. um, where the it can go on and on. And, and, and so just saying, let's think about what we did yesterday in class. Yesterday, we did so-and-so. Instead of saying, who remembers right. or what did we do? Just tell them what you did. Just say it and move on. Be explicit and direct. And that way they can link back to it and we can get onto the skill that we need them to to grab today. Great. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that and providing a little more information. Um, okay. The next thing that I wanted to talk about, and I'm kind of, again, I'm going with sort of the structure of the book um, is read alouds. And I hear read alouds and I immediately think what probably a lot of people think, which is that it's the misconception that, um, you know, read alouds as you, you said in the book, and I'll quote the basic act of reading a text out loud to the class. That, that's where my mind immediately goes. I'll own that. Um, or just having students take turns reading out loud. Um, or I, I always subscribe to as a high school teacher, and I know this, this book is mainly for, for K to five, but I would always say, well, kids are too old for read alouds. So tell us more about what read alouds should be and specifically how, if done correctly, they benefit English learners. I think my eyes light up when I hear read aloud because it's one, I feel like it's one of the most powerful ways to engage students in the love of reading and the joys of opening up a book and finding new experiences and building empathy with one another, building community. There's so many things that a read aloud can do for our kids in our classrooms, even in a virtual setting. I know a lot of us are in remote learning or hybrid learning right now. And, and so we can't give up on read alouds even now, but a read aloud can be more powerful when we implement strategic places where we do have opportunities 
for us as educators to stop and, and think aloud about our, uh, our thought process in, in the text itself. So we're not just reading through the book, but we're actually stopping to model our thinking as readers. And we're also stopping to allow kids to negotiate for their meaning, to stop and draw or stop and um, act out a part of the text or, or turn and share with a partner what their thoughts are in a remote setting that might look like stop and jot something down in the jam board or on the padlet or in the chat, um, share in your breakout room, in your breakout group. Um, but opportunities for students to stop and process what they heard um, in a structured way with the teacher's guided support. So, you know, back in the day when we were in, in school, we may have been exposed to read alouds, but we just sat and listened to a text the whole way through. Right. Whereas this type of read aloud is going to be more interactive. We're asking students to engage more with the text that we're reading aloud to them. But read aloud has so many benefits for our English learners that may not be reading on grade level yet because they're exposed to uh, a greater language structure than they're able to express. And we're allowing them to think at greater levels than they can decode. And that's the importance where we're closing those gaps. Um, if, if we're only allowing them to read at the ability that they can decode, then that's then we're not exposing them to text that, that they can think at. The higher level of thinking that they have, they can think at a higher level than they can decode. Mm -hmm. And that's true for many of our students, not just our English learners. Um, our students can think at higher levels than they can speak a lot of times or than they can read. So um, giving them that opportunity to hear text at a higher level allows them to negotiate for meaning and think and uh, express their thoughts with their peers and hear from my hear ideas from their peers um, about these um, I, ideas that we're reading. Um, and that's just important. That's important. And read aloud also allows us to choose books that are going to be culturally relevant to students, um, exposing them to new ideas or exposing them to characters that are similar to the, to themselves. Uh, so it's just a wide variety of opportunities for us and for them. And I'd like to add something in here, Steve. Please do. Um, um, thank you. You mentioned at the very beginning um, that that a lot of people may think, oh, you know, I teach high school. Those kids are too old for read aloud. Well, I, I teach college and I read aloud to my college students sometimes. And also as an adult, I like to be read aloud too. think about um, when we're in the car listening to a book on um, on a CD or something or um, or listening to um just something read by the author. It's just, um, it's just an incredible experience for anyone, I believe. And, um, and we get to hear um, the voice 
and the the fluency that comes along with that. And I think that that it's important to be a model of fluent reading to our students as well. So you're never too old to be read aloud to, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, in in the classroom, and thanks for bringing up the example as well of like, you know, listening to uh, books while you're in the car, or even listening to us, you know, a, an interesting story or a podcast. I mean, all those mm -hmm. things are are just just kind of our, our oral tradition is there, something that's, I think, embedded within us. I think when you get to that, you start to think about high school, you know, and shared read, I'm sorry, um, uh, you know, when you think about the read, read alouds, it becomes like this kind of scene from a movie where the kids are bored out of their minds because you're not doing it the way that it should be done. So we're talking about doing it in a way uh, that makes it more interesting um, mm -hmm. and, and allow students to reach, as you were saying, Valentina, um, to kind of reach higher levels or get exposed at least to higher levels um, than they could if they were, uh, if they were reading on their own. Um, mm -hmm. And then, then we get into this, the shared reading thing, and this is in, this is in chapter four. Um, so I, I'm not going to really preface this with anything. I would like to give for you both to kind of, to dive into this a little bit, give us an example of how it works. And again, sort of the benefits that can have on English learners. And when I say that, I know that that's obviously going to have benefits for other students as well. So while we're focusing our conversation here and the podcast in general on English learners, this is really beneficial for all students. So let's get into that shared reading piece. So I want you to think about the gradual release of responsibility because that's what our book is modeled on. We're moving from the I do to the we do to the you do. So the mini lesson, the teacher is doing the heavy lifting. It's the I do. I'm going to show you how to do it. And now we're moving to the we do. We're going to do it together as a class with, with the support of the teacher there. We're going to do it. And so the shared reading is, is that opportunity for us to do the, the reading together. We're going to read a text together as a class. And it can be a poem, it can be a big book, it can be a, an excerpt, a chapter, um, but we're enlarging it or everyone is going to have a copy and we're going to read the text together. It can be echo reading or it can be choral reading. Um, there can be a mixture of the two, but students are going to know um, how we're going to read this together. So we may say something like, let's read together. And as the teacher points uh, or uses a pointer or designates a student to point um, to the words or the lines on, on the text. And we read in unison. We, we do a shared reading. This benefits students because um, some students may sit out on the shared reading. And we're not going to call them out on that because students that are sitting out on the shared reading may be listening and may be needing to observe their peers and hear what the sound of the language is like before right, right. they feel comfortable enough to participate. And the more we do shared reading, the more comfortable they be become with it. Um, so don't give up on those students. Don't call them out and embarrass them, but just keep going, keep on, you know, encouraging and, and giving praise and, and having those opportunities for shared reading. 
um, and they will come around. They're going to see that all the other kids are doing it and they're going to hear those words and they're going to want to participate. And so shared reading is a beautiful opportunity for kids to um, learn those high frequency words, um, sight words, uh, higher vocabulary words. And it can be done in whole group, it usually is, but also in small groups. So once we've done a lot of shared reading as a class, I may pull a small group of students that need a little more support and we may use that same shared uh, text that we did as a whole group. I may use that in a small group to practice with my students who need a little bit more support and they're gonna benefit from that extra exp uh, exposure to that text. Um, and that shared reading is gonna be a vehicle to build uh, fluency and model prosody of English language structures, but also build a community of readers uh, and then move towards their writing as well because they could use a lot of that shared reading text in their own writing. Yeah, and I should say, you know, in the book, you have um, read, shared reading lesson maps, and you have that for all the chapters, as well as ways to support English learners. And you have the WIDA, ELPA 21, and the um, the uh, ELPS and Pass on there as well. So there's lots of, you know, we're just kind of scraping the surface here, but it, I was impressed with all of the support that the book um, offers. And, you know, the other thing that you mentioned as well was the gradual release of responsibility, which is in there quite frequently, um, getting to that uh, point where you're allowing students to kind of do a little bit more, um, even if they're, like you said, just listening and they're not being involved in the shared reading, that they are learning from it and they are getting exposure um, and that they can observe. And you, you mentioned writing, which we'll get into um, in a little bit. But you know, I, th I think the idea uh, that there's so many different ways of doing this is, is really crucial to, to bring up. Um, and, and again, a lot of those are mentioned um, in the book. So we move on from um, and that within that sort of range of gradual release of responsibility from shared reading to guided reading, um, which seems to be the next logical step in, in gradually releasing responsibility to students. I, I personally think that this is a really important stage because we need to know, you know where the students are in their particular zones of proximal development to be able to help them in the right way. So I guess my question on guided reading is a little bit more um, focused than the other ones are, a little bit less sort of general. And that is how should teachers approach this in a way that it provides the appropriate structure, but also gets students moving toward independent reading, which is what we'll talk about next. Yes, well, I'd, I'd like to start off talking about guided reading with um, first what it's not. Um, Please do. Okay, what it's not is round robin reading. And, and some of us can remember growing up and being in school and being in a reading group and everyone took their turn to read a page or a paragraph or something out loud to the rest of the group. Or sometimes it was in an entire class in a whole group setting and each student had their own chance to read. And, and that is not what guided reading is. In fact, um, round robin reading is not recommended and has not been found to be effective because it puts students on the spot and um, makes them nervous. They also are likely reading ahead to practice their own part and aren't listening to the other students who are reading. And so they don't comprehend what's being read. 
So there, there are many reasons not to use round robin reading, and they all point to all the good things about guided reading. So, um, so the important thing about guided reading is, like you said, Steve, to find that zone of proximal development and to find the, the right book level for the children to read on. So what, what guided reading looks like is a small group of students who are on the same reading level or, um, or very similar levels with, um, within maybe a level or two. And, um, and the students need to be at that instructional level, which is a level that can be read with 90% accuracy um, to 94% accuracy. Um, it needs to be not too difficult for them, but also not too easy because they need a chance to grow as readers. So they, they have that book that is on their instructional level and, um, and you group the children according to instructional level. And it starts out with the teacher giving a, a very detailed introduction and helping to build the student's background knowledge and, and helping them build on the familiar to something that might be unknown. So, um, so the, during the book introduction, the teacher would, would likely do a picture walk and by the way, each student would have their own copy of the text. That's very mm -hmm. important too, that each child has their own book to look at. So the, the teacher does a book walk, the students could flip through with her, looking at the pictures, looking at the words, the, the teacher would have the students locate familiar words and then perhaps an unfamiliar word. For instance, they might say, um, the, the word bridge is on this page because Dan Dan the flying man flies over a bridge. Can you show me the word bridge on this page? How did you know that was the word bridge? Getting the students to, um, to look at the text, to identify um, what they know about a word, look for something that's familiar. And they might say something like, well, I think, you know, that begins with a B. And so I, I think I hear that bu 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 be at the beginning of the word bridge. So, so then they could point to that word and, and then that, that would be something to help guide them as they read. So the, the teacher gives the, the detailed book introduction and then the students each read on their own. They're reading simultaneously, but not together, not corally. So they're each reading on their own in a very quiet voice. And, and the teacher listens in to each student as they read um, and the student can, and the, the teacher can give prompts while the students are reading. For instance, if they um, get stuck on a word, the teacher can, um, can ask them questions to help them figure out what they can do for themselves to help them figure out the word. For instance, um, what would make sense there? Or do you know a word that, that looks like that? or start the word and read across it and see if you can figure out what that word is, or perhaps even check the picture. And likely um, they would have um, a lot of support through the pictures as well. Um, for instance, back to the bridge example, there would um, likely be a picture of a bridge to support them as well. So the students read through um, on their own with teacher support and at the very end when everyone is finished then the teacher would go back and think of some teaching points mm -hmm. and um, it might be that that the teacher saw somebody go back and reread or saw somebody go back and self-correct a word that they tried 
and they self-corrected um, self it successfully. And, um, and the teacher gives these examples as something that you can do when you get stuck on a word or a strategy that you can do to help you read. For instance, um, the teacher might say, I love the way Maria went back and reread and she started the word and she read across the word bridge. And she also looked at the picture and figured out that that word was bridge. Okay, so, um, so the teacher is then um, giving very specific praise on things that she saw that students did successfully within the reading. And so that, that supports students and gives them access to the strategies that they need to read the text. So guided reading also forms a community of learners because the students are in a group together and they're reading together, they're listening to each other, even though they're reading on their own and they, um, they're supporting one another as readers. And, and so it's a social activity while the students are actually doing reading and practicing reading. So it's, um, it's on the gradual release of responsibility, it's getting to be more um, independence on the student's part with support from the teacher still. Right, yeah, I find it, I find it um, kind of wonderfully intricate. I don't know if that makes sense, but like there's a lot going on here that is, it's so much more than what it appears to be. I mean, the, just thinking of it, as you were speaking, the first thing I was thinking is when you've got a group of students together, you got to make you have to make sure that you have, um, you know, a grasp on where your students are, which is obviously crucially important. You got to have the data to to know where your students are, um, and then you know, the, the, so much of this seems to be about. You mentioned building a community of 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 readers and a classroom community in general, but so much you're listening to students as a teacher walking around providing words of encouragement, which, which again, in the, in the book, you have a really great sort of outline of, of what a teacher does during this situation. Um, and then, you know, and then, and then you're learning as you go sort of very quickly, how students are processing, what they're doing, what strategies they're using. And then you're able to share that with the entire class and provide encouragement, which is really great. And the other thing that I've heard echoed, um, Melinda, between you and Valentina is this idea of reading something more than once. I think we often get into the mindset where when we read something once, we're done with it. But using guided reading to start to explore something in one way and then looking at it another way, um, perhaps independently, which we'll, which we'll get to next. Does that make sense, everything I just kind of mentioned there? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's very important to um, to stick with the familiar, start with the familiar and build from that. So that guided reading book becomes familiar after the reading and, um, and it helps them to, to become fluent the more they re read the book. Yes. So the next one uh, obviously is, uh, or maybe not obviously, but it's independent reading, um, which you know, from the outside looking in may seem to be the most simple, but I have the feeling you're going to tell me that it goes on. Uh, sorry, it goes beyond just just assigning sort of a chapter in a book or giving students free time to to read text that they select. Um, so, put simply, what is the role of the teacher when it comes to independent reading for English learners? Because the word independent, like to me, it's just they read independently. So, what's what what is the role of the teacher here? You're so right, Steve. It's so important that the during independent reading, the teacher's role is clearly defined. So even students know what the teacher is going to do during this time. And this is really where we can maximize 
our potential um, during readers workshop. So while students are reading independently, we're pulling small groups and conferring with students. We may be pulling that guided reading group or we may be working with students one-on-one -on -one to confer so that we know which guided reading groups we're gonna be pulling in the future. We may be conferring with students or making observations so that next week we can pull a strategy lesson with a group. Um, it may be a group that we need to uh, work on um, maybe some English language development or uh, phonics. We may want to work with students on um, uh, a certain skill that we notice three or four kids need to develop. Um, we may need to do some enrichment. Um, but what our role is during that time is to work in small groups or one-on-one -on -one and observe students so that we can continue to move them forward in their reading journey. Um, and that's, that's the power of reading workshop and that independent reading time. It's the biggest block of time during the workshop, independent reading. And uh, there are so many times where teachers and administrators have asked, um, you know, when I've done workshops or um, when I was a, a co-teacher in classrooms about that independent reading time, like um, how do I talk to teachers or how do I talk to administrators about the value of that uh, independent reading time and, and make sure that we all use it. And my message is that during that time when kids are reading independently, we pull groups and we confer and we continue to move kids. And if we're doing that, then, then we're doing great things with our kiddos. And our English learners are gonna benefit more if we're meeting with them more frequently. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're gonna know if, if they need more support and they're not hiding behind their book or stuck on one book for weeks at a time or lost in the words um, or they're not moving forward, the more we meet with them and the more we're um, talking to them and building relationships with them through this independent reading time when we're pulling groups and conferring, we're also building relationships with these kids. So this is really the time that we can maximize our instruction with our kiddos. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that a lot of the things that you're saying, Valentina, kind of go against the word, the meaning of the word independent, you know, because <laughs> we're really, I mean, I don't want to say that we're using this time as teachers uh, to kind of find some time in our busy days where we can actually confer with groups, as you're mentioning, but it does provide a really great opportunity for that. So I think it's important to, to, to really, to really understand that it seems to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's just important for students to sort of independently read as it is for the teacher to be able to, to use that time to bring groups together and to make progress on reading. So maybe, I mean, you already wrote the book and I think it's a good name, but maybe we figure out a new name for this thing. <laughs> Yeah, it is a little misleading. It's independent for 
it's independent reading for the most part, but during that time, we're, we're kind of pulling out some time to work with kids. We can't work with all of them all at once right. um, in small groups and conferring, but um, we're cycling them through those small groups and conferring. And by the way, this is the time when we're letting them read self-selected books independently. So mm -hmm. they're self-selecting um, through their passions, their interests. They may be reading uh books that are written in their native language and that's okay too. So we want to encourage that with our English learners um, because literacy is literacy, no matter what language it's in. So I, I want to be sure that, that that message is heard too. Yeah. We want to create a space for our students and their cultures and all of their languages. So. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. That's important. I did not mention that. And I'm glad um, you did, that students can certainly choose whatever books, whatever languages work for them in those particular situations. So I want to move forward. And Melinda, I know you're going to take the reins here a little bit as we talk about writing. Um, and, you know, I, I want to use a quote that I saw in the book as an entry point to what you're calling write alouds. Um, I'll read it and then um, I'll have you respond to it. Um, so it says, uh, um, Let's see, though sharing examples is effective, pre-made writing does not support the write aloud process. The power in write alouds lies in the way we make them while students observe. They're able to witness how an idea grows into a piece of writing. I thought that quote was compelling um, and without sort of giving you any more details, I'd love for you just to react to that and just let us know what you mean by that. Okay, so it's, it's so powerful when the teacher's doing a write aloud and creating the writing piece as she goes. And, um, and the students get to hear the thought processes that go into a piece of writing. So if, if the teacher just puts up a pre-made piece of writing, the students were not privy to everything that went into that writing. So, um, so a write aloud looks like a teacher sitting either with a document camera or um, maybe a, um, even a, a chart tablet or a smart board or something, or even an overhead projector, whatever it might be. Um, and the, the teacher is talking through her thoughts while she writes. So she's saying things like um, how she chose her topic, how she wants to start it, um, how she wants to begin with a capital letter, and how um, she um, wants to end with certain punctuation and things like that. And she talks about her thoughts that she would actually be thinking in her head as she's writing something. And so what this gives students is like a, a window into the teacher's mind as she's writing so that mm -hmm. students can see the actual um, picture of what it looks like for somebody to write, what it looks like and what it sounds like for somebody to write. And so, and this is, um, this is very heavy on teacher support when we think about um, gradual release of responsibility. So this is heavy, heavy on teacher support. And so it's also important to um, take little times where you ask the students to turn to their partner and talk about what the teacher's doing, talk about what they're seeing and what they're hearing the teacher do as she's writing. 
right? So, um, so that especially for English learners, that this helps them to process what they are seeing while the teacher is doing a write aloud. Yeah, making making thinking and learning visible um, in a very exactly. uh, sort of spontaneous, creative way. I just, as you were speaking, you know, I started to think about. I love it how you said it's a window into the way that teachers are thinking that that's normally invisible. And I, I chose that quote because, you know, the, the exactly what you said about the pre-made examples that, that you, you don't get to see that. And I started to think about, you know, metacognition, learning how we think. And I, I have to think that if this is something that's done not only, you know, in one class, but over the course of the student's sort of career as a writer and as a reader, they get to see how a variety of different teachers think, which you know, everybody's different. And they can sort of apply some of the things that work for them to their own learning. It's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It really is. It's very important for the, the students to see and hear about those thought processes. Right. And it's probably messy. I mean, I'm sure that at times it's messy, it's, yeah. it's messy and that's okay. And that's another thing that's important to understand is that learning uh, or processing or thinking about something is messy at the beginning. Right. And it's important for the students to see that even when the teacher writes or even when an author writes, it's not going to be perfect the first time, but they have to think through and, um, and negotiate with themselves about what they want to write, how they want it to sound. And then um, the teacher can even go through the whole writing process, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, and even through a write aloud and even go back and talk about how they want to do some revising and editing and thinking about words that sound better and things like that. So, um, this is just a, a really important way for, for students to be introduced to writing and to, um, to see what goes into it and to see what goes on in the brain while somebody's writing. Right. Okay, well, let's move on to shared writing. It's the same kind of, you can see it's a similar structure to the, to the read allows and the shared um, reading. Um, very simply, what is it and how can it benefit English learners? So shared writing um, can be um, can look two different ways or or more. It can look many different ways. But the two ways we describe in the book are interactive writing and um, language experience approach. So the language experience approach is more um, heavy on the teacher support. The students have a shared experience like um, like perhaps going on a field trip or doing a science project or something together. And so the teacher would start off by having a conversation with the students about what they did to, to help them um, remember and to help them start processing their thoughts about what they just did and to also activate that, that knowledge that they have, that shared knowledge they have of the shared experience. Then um, the teacher has the students dictate what they want to say in, um, in the same format, um, like on the, on the dot camera or on a chart paper or something. And the teacher takes dictation. And in, in this type of shared writing, the teacher does all of the writing for the language experience approach. And the teacher would say things like, um, maybe the first word was the, okay, how do we spell the? And the students might um, tell her how to spell the. Okay, we remember we need to start with a capital letter. So I'm starting with a capital letter. And then um, if they get to a word that is unfamiliar to the students, the teacher might say, okay, what do we hear at the beginning of cake, cake? And then the students can 
can say, oh, it's the k sound, so it's maybe a C. And so the teacher can model the process of, um, of sounding out a word and going through that word as they're writing and may and would even say things like, oh, you know, this this word has a a silent E on the end. It's a tricky E and you don't hear it, but we put it on the end or something like that. So um, so the teacher does all of the writing during the language experience approach. And it's important for the students to go back with the teacher and reread what's been written. And, um, and again, it's kind of still a little bit like write aloud and the, the teacher guides the students through the process that they would go through in their minds as they're writing something about thinking about um, writing the sentences, what they wanna say next, and making sure that they cover everything that they want to say in the writing piece. And then after this is complete, the teacher might um, put it on the wall or put it in the book center so, so students can go back and reread it themselves again and again. And they have part authorship in what they've written. So that's important too. Then interactive writing has the students do some of the writing. So this is what, um, what we think of as sharing the pen. So the teacher would again guide the students through the process of writing something together as a class or as a small group. And this time students would come up and do some of the writing. Typically what would happen is that the, the students would come up and write words that they're familiar with, words that they know, and the teacher would write words that are unknown. Again, modeling the processes of, oh, what do I hear at the beginning of that word? And, um, and, oh, that sounds like a K, so I'm going to start that word with a K and, and modeling in that way. Um, and again, it's a, it's a story that's dictated by the students, or it might be a how-to paper, or it might be telling about an experience they had together, but they dictate it, but then they also take part in the writing. And something interesting that sometimes comes up is what if the students misspell the word that they're writing? Well, there, there are different schools of thought on this. Some teachers might say, um, take a piece of correction tape and cover it and say, oh, you know, sometimes um, we need to go back and edit. And, and we, um, when we misspell a word and we have to spell it correctly so that our readers can read the word. But some teachers also prefer to leave it the way the children have written it, because that, again, that's a window into the way children are thinking and the way they are processing what they know about letters and sounds, the alphabetic principle. They're using their phonics to, um, to think about what the word might be spelled like. Right. So that's right. valuable, too. And that, that's one of those things that's, a, that's kind of done differently and is kind of um, maybe even controversial sometimes. Yeah, we we won't go down that road. That'll be a whole other podcast for another oh, definitely, time. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. But you but you bring up a good point that different styles, sort of different approaches. Yeah, um, exactly. On that. Yeah, and so and again, once the once the story or the writing piece is complete, then they would go back and and read it all together. That's important to go back and reread it, and then again, um, they could publish it as a class story or a class book, or simply. Um, post it on the wall on a sheet of paper so that students can go back and, and reread it over and over again. And something that they've written, they're more likely to be able to read themselves. So that's exciting for the students. And again, that's that community of 
of writers coming together to write something together. And right. so that helps build that community as well. I was going to say that you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, this community building, we talked about it through reading now through writing, but also, you know, this gradual release of responsibility, obviously, as you go from this, the teacher actually doing the writing while the students dictated to having the students take part in that you're sort of releasing that responsibility, which Absolutely, trans- yes. which transitions us into the final piece, which is independent writing, um, which I guess is, 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 is that is the actual um, you know, independent writing is the you do piece and the gradual release of responsibility. Um, so, you know, that, that can be tricky for, for, for teachers of, of anyone, but particularly for teachers of English learners, like what, you know, um, supports need to be in place so students can write independently. At what point do we know that they're ready? Obviously we've gone through a whole process here and hopefully by the time we've gone through everything that we've just talked about, they are ready at this point, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about that, um, sort of specifically your insight as to, you know, what supports we need to, to have in place as students write independently. We talked about independent reading, how it's not just giving students books and having them sit down and read them. You have to be a part of the, the process. And that's also an opportunity for teachers to form groups. What does that look like with independent writing? It looks very similar, actually. So, um, so I would start off a writing process a writing workshop, no matter what the age of the students, I would start off with some modeling, um, showing the students what it looks like um, to do writing workshop. And we use the writing process as we write. So that includes the um, pre-writing and then the drafting, revising and editing, and then publishing, and finally sharing the writing piece. And so I would model it, I would have the students role play it, and then I would go through the whole process together with the students to um, to let them do a writing piece together that, um, that we actually walk through as a class. And then eventually we'll get to the point after a couple of times where they're able to do the writing process on their own and they're also able to incorporate that into writer's workshop. So, um, so writer's workshop, very similar to reading workshop, we also have our conference time. So, um, so while students are writing independently, they, um, they're being called for conferences. We also would have writing mini lessons when, um, when the teacher reads through the writing and, and sees some things that, that maybe students need to think about, things that they might be struggling with. That can be the topic of that writing mini lesson. And also when the student comes for a writing conference, the teacher provides a lot of support that way as well. And, um, and I also wanna point out that, that just like reading workshop, writing workshop takes the child where they are and, um, and it helps them grow. So they can write at any stage where they are. So if the student's writing looks like pictures and what people may call scribbles, then that's what they do during independent writing time. If it looks like a few words strung together or a few letters even strung together and the student knows what it says, but maybe um, it doesn't look like conventional writing yet, then that's what they do during independent writing time. Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty of it, that students um, who are just emerging as writers and students who are fluent writers can sit in the same writing workshop and work simultaneously. 
So there, there's still, there's a, a lot of support again, even though it's independent writing, there's a lot of support from the teacher. Yeah. And I'm really glad you mentioned the idea of students being able to write at different levels depending on where they are. And, you know, just to point out that, that writing may not look like what we think of as writing when somebody who's just starting off and that's perfectly fine. And then, you know, the, the parallel between independent writing and independent reading um, in terms of be that being also used as a time for the teacher to be able to talk with students and group them um, is, is useful as well. And I hope that that listeners as I have have been able to kind of see the arc sort of of how this this works and I like I said I I use the table of contents of the book to sort of structure this conversation which hopefully you know flowed in a, in a nice way but there's just so much more um, in there that we didn't get into there's there's lots of examples there's some really really great sort of anecdotes and uh, and quotes that I that I got to today but there's many things that I did not get to today so um, I really uh, enjoyed looking at the book. I really am appreciative of you both coming on. Um, and I'd love to take an opportunity to, to ask you how people can learn more about the work you're doing or, or get in touch or, or just kind of follow you on social media if you're on there. Um, what's the best route to go there? Valentina, why don't you start and then we'll go to Melinda. Yeah, uh, so I'm definitely active on Twitter at Valentina ESL. And Melinda and I are offering a free webinar on October 28th, you can go to sidelitseducation.com and click on webinars to find out about that. Even if you have to watch it in replay, um, that will be awesome. And we have our book launch party on November 16th. We'll be giving away a free, a few free copies of the book during our book launch party. So join us there. And uh, we are also offering a conference, a three-hour conference on December 14th on reading and writing with English learners. So check that out. Um, That will be on the website soon. I don't think it's up yet, but it will be soon. So we hope to engage with you and collaborate with all of you soon. So um, on Twitter, my handle is at Dr. Melinda Miller. So very simple. And I have actually just joined Twitter two days ago, and I'm very excited to become more active on Twitter. And so, um, and we're, we're looking forward to all of the the wonderful opportunities um, for people to come and join us and find out more about our book. Yeah, well, thanks very much. That's great. Lots of good stuff coming up. Um, and we will post uh, links as when we can links. We'll also post those dates on the show notes. Um, and I just wanted to thank you again. The book is great. It's called Reading and Writing with English Learners. Um, and I think people will really enjoy it and appreciate, like I said, have said many times, the structure of the book, um, which is really conducive to sort of a busy uh, classroom teacher working with a wide variety of students. And um, uh, Valentine, I believe you said it's it's actually available on the Sidelets website now and will be available in other places later. So I'll make sure I, I um, link to that. And with that, thank you both for coming on, Melinda, your first time. I hope it was fun. And Valentina, I don't even know how many times it's been now, but I really appreciate both of you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. We had a wonderful time. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.